Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we near the end of another week navigating the new normal. Shutting their doors has not stopped Hammond's House Museum from offering rich content to the public. We'll hear from poet Jessica Care Moore, ahead of her virtual event with Hammond's House this evening. For young adult readers, a book with a local setting that takes on serious themes of friendship and racial injustice. The novel is written from two points of view, one black girl and one white. We'll hear from Gilly Siegel and Kimberly Jones, the co-authors of I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. First, we're familiar with one-stop shopping, enabling us to get groceries, fill prescriptions, and do banking all in one place. Rachel May and David Smith had something similar in mind as they created Art Beats Atlanta, sort of a one-stop place for local arts and cultural events. They are with us now via Zoom. Rachel, David, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Lois. What gave you the idea to start this service? Well, I will I will start. Uh, David called me one day right after things shut down and said, I love the arts and I want to figure out how to help everyone because it seems like, you know, all the all of the places are shutting down and what's how are we going to experience art? And in that conversation, he and I talked about a whole lot of ideas and um, came up with the idea that, you know, everyone was going to be offering lots of virtual opportunities right now, but no one would be able to find all of them easily. And so how could we be a place that everything could come together and everyone, as you said, could just go and take a look and see what virtually is offered? To add to that, because I have such a significant involvement with the dining, nightlife, entertainment industries, which were similarly affected by the shutdown uh, and so what some of my clients and friends were doing in terms of aggregating 
digital offerings of food, whether it was for delivery or curbside pickup, and said, these guys, we should be learning something from them. That they're, rather than people having to source through a hundred different possible vendors, they can go to one place and find out everyone who's actually still providing a menu, what they're, what they're providing, how you can access it. I said to Rachel, I'm pretty engaged in the arts and I'm quite confident I'm missing 80% of the digital offerings until I learn about them the day after they occurred. I said, can't we make this more user-friendly for the person who's sitting at home and candidly feeling a little thrown off their game, a little bit isolated, disconnected, bored with the television and movie streaming offerings and just want something, a little bit of distraction, a little bit of amusement. So for couple of hours, they can escape the realities of what's going on and just feel better. And how can we make the arts part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem? So how does it work? Well, we have a wonderful designer who came on board with us, um, Stephanie Watson. And through lots and lots of discussion with many of the arts leaders and groups who have come on board uh, and amongst the three of us, we really found a way where you could go to the site and either look at the homepage, which has the next 10 featured activities, virtual offerings that are happening, or you can go to a full calendar, which shows you all of the offerings that are happening. Or if you're saying, I'm in the mood for theater, you can pop over to the theater page and look and browse through just the theater offerings or even just the theater organizations. Or you can pop over to the film and visual arts page. You can go to dance. You can go to mixed arts, which is for arts centers and, and organizations that really put forth arts in a whole bunch of different dis disciplines. And so, so it's really, really easy. And within one or two clicks, you can find either exactly what you're looking for at the organization you love, or you can stroll through a buffet of offerings and find organizations and offerings that you never would have encountered otherwise. So, Rachel, is Artbeats Atlanta beyond a calendar listing? Is it a repository for online content? It's a great question. Uh, currently, it is not a repository for online content. Um, we are working with member organizations, and this really is a volunteer-led co-op of organizations coming together to create something, which is, I think, just been really beautiful at this moment. It's born in this crucible of crisis um, where we are able to come together and create something even in the midst of such a difficult time. But since we launched, we've actually gotten a lot of inquiries about that. And so I think there's a potential for that in the future, but right now it is not a repository for content. But we currently have 60 organizations who have joined and we have more inquiries every day since we launched last week. And there's a wide variety of organizations among those 60, from the Alliance and Synchronicity and the Outfit to the Center for Puppetry Arts, the Museum of Design Atlanta. Do the organizations approach you or do you reach out to them? Uh, at first we reached out. So I, of course, had access to all of the theaters. So I reached out there first and then um, we started talking with C4 Atlanta and 
we talk because they have their finger on the pulse of a lot of different disciplines and are connected to a lot of different organizations. And we, once we built the name and the brand with a small branding committee that we put together from, from about 10 of the organizations who came on board early, we started reaching out and building a list and in pretty short order, David did some good legwork and research in certain areas and had the contacts that he is familiar with. And we just started spreading it out through all of our networks. And we've got a list of about a hundred that we've been actively pursuing. But again, since we launched and since we, you know, really got a lot of momentum going, we've been getting inquiries regularly. I would imagine you need to do some sort of screening for the organization's content. How does that work? Well, that was a really important early question. And it was important for us to make this as accessible as possible for organizations who are producing content, but also ensure that what we are putting up on the site and promoting on the site uh, are professional arts organizations. And so, we needed to come up with some sort of criteria in order to do that screening. And what we did was we looked to a number of organizations who already have those criteria in place. So we looked at the ARC's 10 county region for a geographic uh, boundary. And we looked at the Metro Atlanta Arts Fund for some of their guidelines around one full-time person or a full-time equivalent. Um, we looked at how long an organization has been around. Do they pay their performers? So we looked at some of these criteria that are already existing with a number of different organizations. And then we put it together with some flexibility knowing that not all disciplines are created equal. So we have slightly different guidelines for the visual arts versus theater versus dance um, based on what the organizations in those fields were particularly focused on and what they thought would be useful guidelines. Um, and then we have a small panel from some of the member organizations where if there's a question mark, we just talk through it and look at the criteria and try to make a determination. This sounds like exhaustive work you've been doing. And you said it is all <laughs> volunteer? Pretty much, yes. Uh, David and I certainly have been volunteer our, volunteering our time. And David jokes about he has his muggle job, which is his real job. And then, <laughs> and then he's been helping out with this. Um, our graphic designer is, is paid to do the work, but gave us an incredibly wonderful rate because she really believes in this process. And then we've gotten some pro bono support from an attorney and from a couple of other people. And then We've been doing it on top of all of our other jobs, those of us who are working from the theater um, theater and arts organizations. Uh, and it's been a lot. It's been it's become really big very quickly. And what we built in a very short time is pretty, pretty remarkable. <laughs> I think the genesis for me is that for as long as I can recall, if anybody asked me, David, what would you do in a world without money or without concerns about money? for the sheer satisfaction of doing it, my answer has been consistent, that I would unite the public with culture, that I would A, help people find out that it even exists, B, ensure to them that there's no test of sophistication or knowledge to enjoy it, you just figure out what you enjoy, and that C, it's not wildly unaffordable, because I really believe that we'd be a better society, we'd be happier people, we'd get along better, 
if we had some enrichment in our lives and were a little bit more of a civilization than an empire. And that was what I always felt. What I didn't realize that it was that it would take a pandemic to afford me the opportunity to actually mm -hmm. put that thesis to work. And the only thing I got that was a very coordinated thing was understandably a solicitation from a number of large organizations in the form of a letter with logos on it asking for some financial help. But what I didn't get was, you know, a coordinated messaging around the solutions. So it has been a lot of time. It's been a lot of working with people to merge different points of views and perspectives. But I truly believe it's worth it, not only for what we're accomplishing in the current environment, but because if for every eight people who are availing themselves of digital content who in the last year had been to some aspect of the arts, if there are two people who are exposed to the arts anew as a result of this and come out of it and say, well, that was really fun. I'm going to go to a play at Synchronicity Theater or Actors Express. I've never been to a play in Atlanta before. If we actually come out of this stronger as an art ecosystem and community, I think that we will have hit it out of the park. That's truly the goal. It's to make it better now and to build a bigger audience for the future. Absolutely. And Lois, you know, when we started, when David and I started talking, we were talking about how do we, how do we come up with something right now for this virtual space? But what I said at that time is that, you know, we've been trying to really build a standalone arts portal in Atlanta for 20 years, <laughs> you know, and so it's really wonderful that we were able to put this together now with the goal that come August, September, October, November, December, however long, you know, we still have this virtual life that we're that we're living um, as live arts start coming back and reopening, they will roll right into this and this will be uh, a, a long term project. It's not it's not designed only to be here during this time. It's we really built it uh, with a lot of structure on the, on the back end of the site and of the the process so that it can it can grow and expand um, as live arts come back. Well, I congratulate you and commend you on this work, which shows how important it is for a thriving arts community in Atlanta. First and foremost, people have to be informed about it. Right. What has been the community response so far? You know, speaking because I'm in the theater, I can speak from that field most particularly, but really early on as the pandemic happened and started to hit Atlanta, I have been so impressed by the collaboration that has happened amongst the theater community. Um, within days, there was an email list that had one email address that went to all the arts leaders in town and everybody completely democratically kept adding names. Um, and we were talking about the loans and all of the different things and people were being incredibly transparent and supportive. And there is now a Friday um, meeting amongst all arts leaders um, where we talk about reopening and all of the issues we're all facing. And so that that sprung up very quickly just as Art Beats was starting to come into formation. And so, you know, the answer pretty quickly when I posted on that one one place was, that's amazing, let's do it, what do you need? <laughs> so, you know, so it, it pretty much has been a, a 
completely positive response. I think there are some organizations who have taken a little more time to get their brain around it and also who might be working with furloughed staff or who are, you know, scrambling like we all are right now to sort of make ends meet and get through the day. Um, but once we were able to make the process very easy for joining and, and entering in information, it's been pretty unanimously popular and positive, which has been really rewarding. I can speak for the non-arts people, which is why I love my collaboration with Rachel. In fact, I adore Rachel and synchronicity. Uh, I'm not from this community. I don't have an arts organization. I'm not an artistic director, managing director. I, so to speak, have no professional dog in the fight, but I have a very deep personal dog in the fight. So the balance, the yin and the yang between Rachel and me on this whole undertaking has been she is immersed in and very sensitive to the concerns of the arts community. And I stand as the proxy for the public, making sure that the positioning, the messaging, the offerings, the accessibility and so forth are sensitive to the desires and concerns of the public because at the end of the day, while the arts community and the public are the beneficiaries of this, the consumer is the person who is looking at this as an entertainment alternative to other things that are available to them. And that balance has been great. So to that end, I think we have something like 210 or so likes on Facebook in a matter of a week and 70 of them happen to be people I had invited, which tells me that beyond the arts community, people who are just part of the public are receiving this really favorably. Wonderful. David Smith, Rachel Meg, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you continued success with Artbeats Atlanta. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you, Lois. It's been delightful. Rachel May and David Smith are the co-founders of Artbeats Atlanta. There's more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The closing of public spaces has not impeded Hammond's house for sharing artistic content. Hammond's House Digital is presenting An Evening with Jessica Care Moore. She'll read from her new collection, We Want Our Bodies Back, and she'll also engage in conversation with Hammond's House Executive Director Leatrice Elsie Wright. Jessica joins us now. Welcome to City Lights. 
Thank you. You have such a beautiful voice. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Oh, that is so sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here and really excited about this event with Hammond's House. I've been doing a, a lot of different online events and me and Leatrice really wanted to make this one special. I was really excited to be coming home to I lived in Atlanta for seven years. So Hammond House was absolutely in my neighborhood. I lived on Oak and Abernathy and then I bought a home uh, with my then husband off Cascade in 285. So Atlanta is one of those, uh, when, in West End in particular, Southwest was my home for seven years. And so I have roots there. It's, I have roots in, and Hammond's house was a beautiful space that I performed in many, many times. Oh, it remains so, and we love it here. I noticed in your bio and online that you use lowercase letters for Jessica and more, but for care, you use an uppercase C when writing out your name. Can you tell us the backstory? Absolutely. Um, so and thank you for noticing <laughs> because some people just don't, yeah, never ask me about it. But the, it, I did it for Bell Hooks. It's, it's a homage to Bell Hooks. And I'm not the only one that does it. Uh, Dream Hampton, my sister, does that, filmmaker and writer. And Asha Bandeli, who's also a, a poet and activist out of New York City, um, our lowercase. And I think for us as young women coming into ourselves, young black womanist thinkers. Um, Bell Hooks was one of our heroes and still is. And so it's in care I capitalize because it's the name that I took for myself, whereas I was born Jessica and Moore. Um, but care was a name I was given as a young activist at Wayne State University's campus. My best friend Ken used to call me Care Bear and said, Jessica, you just care about everyone. You want to save the world and feed the homeless and stop racism. And that's what I was, you know, on my college campuses, this little ball of fire. <laughs> and so he called me Care. And so it just kind of stayed. And so I started reading poetry out loud. You know, people had stage names and I never wanted to change my name. I was like, I'm going to use my own name. <laughs> and then I decided just to put the care in the middle and I went on Showtime at the Apollo in 1995 and said it to Steve Harvey in front of a national television audience. And then that was my name. <laughs> like I couldn't really go back after that. Well, so what an auspicious place to debut that. Now, how long have you been working on creating this poetry collection? We want our bodies back. Well, it's, it's my fifth book. I feel like when I write a book, I'm always, I feel like I'm writing it, taking my entire life to write a, a book, but it's a collection of the last few years. It, um, probably 20 poems from 2017, 2018, you know, maybe two years of, of work and travel, but the, the title piece, uh, and title of the, the book is We Want Our Bodies Back is for Sandra Bland. And so it's also, there's poems in there for Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, there's poems for Michael Brown. I, I was on the ground as, a, as an artist and activist in uh, St. Louis and Ferguson for several days when uh, protests, peaceful ones that turned violent um, were happening. I was in the middle of all of it. And so this book really captures the time that we're in right now, the time that hasn't changed enough, unfortunately. Uh, I, I just, I, I'm really, don't want to write any more poems about anyone, Black people in particular dying by the hands of police, unarmed people being killed on YouTube. It's tiresome, it's uh, stressful. And so this book is that, it's full of love, you know, lots of homages in the book as well. 
Um, I think it's just, that's the balance for me. I have these homages for Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, who I love dearly, and a poem for Sonia Sanchez, um, kind of vertical woman that I wrote for her 80th birthday. And, and those, are the, the, those are the healing poems that kind of keep me going. And, uh, but it's a very personal work. Um, it's about motherhood, you know, my challenges with motherhood and raising this free indigo child in my home, my poet son, piano playing baby king. And, and, what, it, and what it becomes just to want to raise your son free. And um, the, the U.S. education system is not built for my child, absolutely. And I've been paying for school since preschool. And it's, it's still not enough. You know, you, with public school, you, you lose a lot. And then with private school, he loses even more. And so, you know, it's been really, the pandemic has brought him home to me. And now he's a, a student. And, and that says a lot. It's been a, a great learning. And so this, it's a motherhood is there, the frustration and the, the fear that you have raising a Black son in this country is there. How old is he? How old is King? He's 13. So I call him an Obama baby. So when King was born, all he knew was like President Obama. He would look at the American flag and he would say, Obama. And I was like, really? So it's such a different perspective. And I remember him turning, he was nine years old, I think when Donald Trump won. And I was out of the country. I was actually working in Brazil at Flup Literary Festival. And I remember him, when I got home, he was terrified. And I was like, what's wrong? And he said, I don't want to become a teenager with this man as the president. And I told him that at that moment, you know, well, King, I want you to know something. It's very important that you remember that because mommy is the president and that's who runs this household. And that's who is the center of what happens in our home and our life, not that person. And so we, that's how we operate. <laughs> mommy is the president. And this is, the rules come from me. And this is your guidance into life. And, and you're going to be fine. And I'm your protection. Sounds and like a democracy to me. Listen, <laughs> we have to change, you know, how we think about and, and stop really giving power to these people who don't have any, you know, truly, because the reason why our president acts and, and whoever's president, he's not my president. But the reason why he acts that way is because he is so powerless and he's spiritually inept because you can't treat people the way that he's treated them. And I'm in the middle of Detroit. We're in, I'm in the center of COVID-19. Uh, I've lost friends, family. I spent the first 10 days of quarantine not being able to do much of anything besides cry and just be in a state of shock with losing childhood friends, friends my age, um, some older friends of mine that passed away. I can't really count. Like in Detroit, every, especially the Black community, we're still a, a 85%, maybe 90% Black city. Um, despite gentrification, we are here and it's been frightening what's happening to us here, which is why we don't complain about the extension of our quarantine has gone now to June 12th and everyone has our masks and no one's complaining <laughs> because there's no rush. I'm not rushing into my death, you know, um, so I'm fine. So it's been, it's been deep as a writer, like really trying to find a way to be inspired. I'm wondering what, what's my next book, you know, and then, but we want our bodies back is so relevant to the moment. I'm, I'm, only, I'm just grateful to have these spaces so I can share the work. <laughs> and I'm excited about Hammond's House. So me and Leatrice, who've known each other since I was producing for the National Black Arts Festival. Um, I, I brought, I do, I've been producing Black Woman Rock, this rock concert in honor of Betty Davis for 16 years. And I started it right in Atlanta, Georgia, actually, uh, at Variety Playhouse and um, during the National Black Arts Festival. And so I got a lot of roots in, in that place um, 
called Georgia and and uh, and Leatrice and I will be able to tap into a lot of a lot of things because we do have a, a connection and a friendship that's lasted a long, long time. Right. So. Would you read one of the poems from We Want Our Bodies Back? Of course I will. Yeah, let me read something. Where Are the People is a poem that I wrote about what's happening everywhere with the taking over of urban cities and the pushing out of, of poor people out of their homes. And where are the people, my son and I got a, a pizza from a, a kind of a new pizza hip pizza spot and they put pepperoni on the pizza and we don't eat that. And so we drove up Cass Corridor, which has been renamed Midtown in Detroit, just to find someone to give a free pizza to and couldn't find anyone. So I wrote this poem for those people. Where are the people for the bodies we can no longer locate? Where are the one-way tickets? Who signed the death certificates? Where are the magicians, the madmen, the toothless, the smoothless, the poets, the corner store prophets, the bus stop historians, the traffic stoppers? Where are the people? Where are the blues? Under which pile of gravel? Where are they buried? Hurricane cast corridor. Where is the soil, the soil, the socks, the soles, the shoes? Where is the soil, the soil, the socks, the soles, the shoes? Where is the heroin? Where are the pills? Where are the women? Where are the thrills? Where is Cass Corridor, my student asked. Is it a building? Is it this way? Is it that way? Your school is sitting in it, I answer. You, is it? The dogs are walking the people. The dogs have parks. The parks don't have children. Where are the people? The stepped over, the forgotten Holocaust, the fragile, the beautiful, the fast talkers, the backward walkers, the 3 a.m. stalkers. Where did they take them? When will they return? Where is the balance? Where is the money? Where are the schools? Where are the people? We all got Wi-Fi. Nobody getting high outside. Where are the beds? Where is they heads? Where are the recognizable street signs? Where is Joe Lewis? Where are the black people? My white neighbor asked me, Jessica, where are all the black people? Where are the chosen people? Our hearts, our guitars, our bass players. Rest in peace, Kenny Mack, Anthony Tolson. Where are the anointed, the children of God? Where is the sage, the holy water? Where is the black imagination located? How much does it cost per square feet to rent there? Is there a rent to own your black imagination option? Where are the couples fighting in the alleys? Where are the purple flavor Mad Dog 2020 labels? Where are the needles? Where is the good time? Where did all these damn bike lanes come from? Where is the line to simply exist? Where is the painted line to live, to breathe? Where are the parks with swings? Where are the children supposed to live? Where are the children supposed to run? Where are the twilight teasers, the moonlight mythology makers? Where are our military vets are mentally ill? Where are the people? Where are the people? Where are the people? San Francisco, Oakland, Harlem, Detroit, Atlanta, Chicago. Do you know? Do you know, huh? Have you seen them? Do they all die so new Detroit could live? Do they all die so new San Francisco could live? Where is your conscience? Where is this nonsense coming from? Where is humanity? Where are the people? Where are the people? The one-way tickets. The message is still in the bottle. Where are the indigenous? Where are the salt mines? Where are the people? Where are the people? Where are the people? When you find them, please tell them. I have an overpriced gentrified cheese and pork pizza with their names on it. Tell them I'm writing for them so they won't disappear without a fight. Wow. I hear so much music in that and in the way you read it, so that you founded Black Women Rock seems even less of a surprise. Could you talk about that movement? Yeah, please. Yeah, Betty Davis, uh, who was married um, at one time to Miles Davis, a funk rock pioneer in the 70s that um, was overlooked um, by American rock and roll history. She lives in Pittsburgh. She's been a muse of mine. Uh, I got to know her because Amir 
Quest Love from the Roots said something to me at a club in New York years ago um, in the 90s and said, you smile with Betty Davis teeth. And I was like, really? So I guess my smile reminded me of her. And I looked her up and I became completely enamored by this woman and this music. And I didn't understand why I didn't know more about her. And I'm interested in kind of excavating women's stories that are not, you know, talked about readily. And, and, and especially because Miles Davis is such a huge figure. And without, without Betty, um, there would really be no new Miles. There would be no unloosening of the tie. And he was in, um, introduced to Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone's music through Betty Davis. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right. I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like a foxtrot. Now, instead, she spit it, snuffing boogie down on drain. And so I knew that there were daughters of Betty. It's kind of uh, the tribe that I roll with. So 16 years ago, I decided to call some of my rock women and the, the women I know in New York City and Atlanta who were making very progressive, edgy rock and roll music, but couldn't get any radio play. And I started the movement just to fill that void, to give these women space. And I secretly am a rocker, loved, grew up listening to a lot of rock and roll, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. I mean, you name it, I was listening to it. ACDC, I went to all white Catholic schools from first to eighth grade, so forget about it. I mean, I, was, I, knew, I knew Metallica. Like, I, I was a Janis Joplin crazy girl at fifth, in fifth grade. My mom was a hippie, and so I, had, I was reading Janis Joplin's biographies when I was really young, and so I, was, I, I loved rock and roll. And, and, it's, and so I didn't realize that, it, I mean, 16 years later, you would think that I wouldn't need to continue to do this, but there's so many of us out here, you know? And so I've had incredible women, uh, Celise Henderson, Joy, Kimberly Nicole, Julie Dexter, uh, Nick West, Divinity Rocks, Kat Dyson, our musical director, who's our lead, lead guitarist. So it's like usually a 12 to 15 piece, all black woman orchestra that plays rock and roll. And it's a fast paced, concert that is the best concert I've ever seen in my life. And I'm saying that because I wish that I could not even be producing it so I can actually sit in the audience and enjoy it. But we blow people away. We're annual in Detroit. Um, we've headlined the Apollo Theater. We did the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts twice a few years ago. We, we were very honored to headline the Pittsburgh Jazz Festival in, uh, well, I can't remember what day, was it 2018 or 19, it's a blur. And Betty Davis, um, who doesn't come out, who is a recluse, sent these beautiful autograph photographs to me and also to Nona Hendrix, who's our legend that has done the show with me countless times now. And so it's a movement for sure. Um, unfortunately, the problem is urban radio doesn't play these women who are black and making music. Shout out to Dion Ferris right there in Atlanta, who you know talks very openly about her struggles with the music industry and not having a box to be put in easily. And then rock and roll stations, mainstream white radio organizations don't play their music either. So there's, and these women are internationally famous and why, why I align myself with them 
is because I have the same kind of life. Whereas I've been all over the all over the world to countries, South Africa, performed in Shanghai, Hong Kong, all over Europe, dozens of times, and still, you know, go to the grocery store and people are like, well, who are you? And so either people are fan, like super fans, um, or they haven't met you yet. And I, I and I keep bringing these women and the people in the audience, like, how do you find these women? And so now it's become a community. Uh, of word of mouth thing where other black rockers like Liza Kobe, who's a phenom. I mean, just these women are extraordinary on stage and then they do extraordinary work off stage, right? Beyond the stage, they're amazing. Their stories are incredible. And so God willing, I'll be bringing this back to Atlanta where it did start, right? Um, those, all these years ago, I, I, my dream is to bring it back. And so if you win this pandemic, you know, things kind of open up, the world has opened up again, we'll be able to bring it back to ATL where it started. We'll look forward to that. I know the pandemic caused the cancellation of your book tour, not the virtual event, but an appearance at Hammond's house in person as well. And I read that in March, you held your first Instagram live event talking about your poetry. How did your first performance in front of a social media crowd go? It's been amazing, to be honest. And people have been actually writing about and looking to me as an artist that shifted gears and was able to fully um, engage this virtual reality. And my Instagram show is amazing. It's every Tuesday at seven o'clock. I've been bringing, last night I had on Wordsworth and One Below and Poet Red Storm who just did Deaf Poetry Jam. I just co-produced a Deaf Poetry Jam fundraiser online for COVID-19 for um, my brother and friend, Mayor Raz Baraka in Newark, New Jersey for frontline workers and people who are struggling in Newark, New Jersey. We did a marathon, four hour marathon of Deaf Poetry Jam. It was completely outrageous. And my Instagram live was, was awkward. I, to me, honestly, even every time I try to go on, I kind of forget how to do it. And so I'm learning uh, Zoom. I've been on Zoom, Facebook Live. I had never done a Facebook Live before. But, you know, I'm doing Facebook Lives and now getting 5,000 views on a Facebook Live. So it's expanded my audiences in some ways. People are online more. And so independent artists like myself are taking advantage. I'm normally, when I'm home, I'm home. My house looks crazy right now. It looks like a studio. I'm moving chairs around. I'm shifting corners. I'm putting the camera in front of my artwork. I'm creating backdrops. I'm ordering microphones. A lot has changed. I'm tired of being in the house, but I'm making the best of it. And, uh, and being on Instagram, like last night I connected, you know, Wordsworth, who's in a brilliant MC, you know, just connecting with other artists and us telling our story. It's helping us um, heal and it's helping us feel like our work um, has worth. And from what I'm hearing from people is it's very inspiring. So artists right now, like if we, if we look at what the value of artists are right now with the, with the DJs and the singers and the poets who are taking to the internet to help keep people going and help keep, keep spirits lifted. And we need distractions. And so while I'm exhausted, I'm very blessed. Detroit poet and author Jessica Kerr Moore will read from her new collection and discuss her work in a virtual event with Hammond's House Executive Director Leatrice Elsie Wright this evening at 7 o'clock. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. 
In response to the 2015 Baltimore riots, authors Kimberly Jones and Gilly Siegel together wrote the young adult novel, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. The plot tackles complex race relations at an Atlanta high school, and the story is told from two perspectives, Lena and Campbell, one African-American girl and one white girl. I spoke with the authors before their book launch last August. Here, they explain how their collaboration began. We met in a book club for adult readers of young adult novels at Little Shop of Stories, a local um, institution, bookseller institution. Um, And when the event that you mentioned in Baltimore occurred, this idea for a book came into my head. And Kim and I knew each other, and we were a little bit friendly, and um, I knew that this was not a story that one of us could tell by ourselves. So I decided I was going to go persuade Kimberly to write with me. And I'm a lawyer by trade, so I you know, wrote up all my bullet points and I had all my arguments and I was going to go <laughs> convince her. And I went and lurked around Little Shop of Stories while she was on shift to the point where the staff was like, do we need to call someone? <laughs> and uh, Kim I was said, like, no, I know fine. her, she's fine. <laughs> and then on Kim's break, I said, I started rattling off my bullet points and, and trying to convince her to write with me. And about two sentences in, she said, stop. And I, my heart fell and I thought oh no and she said you had me at let's write together oh it's our Jerry Maguire moment I think it's even better (laughs) and we don't even need to listen to a country song about it Um, why did you feel it was essential to take turns between Lena's and Campbell's narratives well, one of the things that we wanted to do to make sh- was to make sure that the characters were very distinctive um, from each other. And another thing, I was—I used to be the store manager for Little Shop of Stories, and we had an amazing program um, there called Project Bookshelf, where kids who were on free or reduced lunch could come in before any break and get $30 worth of books to take over break with them. Well, when I would try to put books in kids' hands, a lot of times the kids didn't identify with the books that I put in their hand, that they didn't feel like the was their voice that this represented their community and I found myself almost doing like a disservice or betraying them in that I was looking for books that had African-American protagonists and handing that to them saying well this book is amazing and and you know it has someone like you in it and it's like just because we have the same skin tone doesn't mean they're like me or that I relate to them and so I thought about those kids and I wanted to write something in their voice and I wanted them to have a character that made them feel like they were a hero that they could be a hero hero in their community without code switching, without being the bootstraps black girl. Just as they are, they were perfect in their own way and they could be their own hero. So as Gilly and I talked about how we wanted the voices for these girls to be, that was very important to me that Lena stayed authentic to who she was and that she was a representation of her community. And she speaks in lingo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which has... um, a very strong impact in yeah. the story, and yes. and it's kind of musical mm-hmm. once once you get into it. Not far into the book, riots break out. A riot breaks out at the McPherson High School football game, and there's not much backstory on the main characters. There's some material, mm-hmm. 
Why did you choose to focus on the riots and how these two characters navigate through the riots? We often like to say that this book is as much about perspective as it is about race. And it's intentionally set over a very short period of time, about four hours during one night, um, because we wanted to focus on how these two young women would process such a jarring and violent event and whether or not they would be able to work together to survive the night. So it was crucial to us that their story is really about this moment and what's happening in this moment. And the, the lives that they led to date influence how they um, experience these moments, but too much is happening for these girls to be thinking about flashbacks. <laughs> so um, in part, it's also a matter of pacing and mm-hmm. ensuring that they're keeping really present. Would you talk about how Atlanta informs the story? So one of the fun things that fun things that Geely and I did is we chose a neighborhood, um, which is a neighborhood in East Atlanta, infamously known as Zone 6, and we picked a high school in that area, and it has a commercial district not too far away from it. So Geely and I actually took a day and parked our car at the high school, and we walked the route that we thought the girls would walk, and we paid attention um, to the culture of that neighborhood and where the stores were located and the gas stations. And one of the things that we did is we took that, Geely took that map, and she I'm still jealous about this. She got to hang out with the SWAT team. Um, um, So she took that map to the SWAT team. And so SWAT was able to like give us and give her and like an explanation on what we had right and wrong in the map into how we could get the the incident to bubble to the way it did. Um, But because we wanted it to be true to Atlanta, we wanted to make sure that the world building and description that we did was so accurate that we were like, no, we have to like try to live it for a moment um for the atlanta kids to say like that that sounds so familiar i know Uh, where that is that's highway 20 and (laughs) uh, just quickly um i don't want to say it's a fun fact but it is a fascinating (laughs) fact you were in the israeli defense force the idea the idf yes is is gili short for gila uh, it's it is a version of Gila, okay, yes, which yes. means joy. That's right. Did your experience as um, a fighter have something to do with gaining access to the SWAT team? <laughs> no, actually, for that I have to credit my parents, <laughs> who work with some law enforcement organizations down in Florida, um, and they were just incredibly generous with their time and sitting with us. And we worked with both law enforcement and riot survivors from LA and from the Philadelphia riots in the '60s. And for and Ferguson to understand and sort of do honor those experiences from both sides. In one of the chapters, Lena says that Channel 2 is reporting on the riot and she thinks that's worse than the cops. This was eye-opening. Her father says the nice folks in the suburbs like to stay good and scared of what's happening down in the hood. So that's the story reporters always want to tell. What role do you think the media play reporting riots? Um, I think one of the things, uh, particularly when I talk to the Ferguson uh, survivor, um, a big thing that they want to highlight is 
what is happening to, and I'm putting this in quotes worlds, the good people, the results of what are what is happening to the good people and that the people of the community are the bad people. And so um, one of my favorite people that I talked to was Tori Russell um, down in Ferguson. And part of how Ferguson was calmed was Tori Russell created a thing called Books and Breakfast. And the morning after the riots in Ferguson, he collected children's books from people all over the city of Ferguson. And he threw a huge breakfast for the kids of Ferguson and gave them all free books and um, and served everybody breakfast to get everybody to calm down. Well, no one's ever really told the story of Tory Russell calming. And Tory Russell has become kind of a car- of target in Ferguson as someone who's a troublemaker. Um, Wait, and so, why? Um, just because he's very vocal about how he feels about what happened down there. Um, and he's become quite a, he was about 19 when Ferguson happened and he's been a strong activist um, ever since then. And he's one of the riot survivors that we spoke with. And that was one of the things that he kept emphasizing to me is that the community came together in such a beautiful way after this happened and people were helping to clean up shops that they were familiar with and doing things like books and breakfast and all of that. And he said, by the time all of that started happening, which wasn't long after the incident the news had gone there was no interesting sensationalized story of violence and crime and fire and and it was much easier to criminalize that community than to ask the why which is one of the things that we hope we're doing with I'm not dying you didn't watch tonight is that even when you have moments like that going all the way back to the riots of the 60s the question that no one ever asked is why why are the people burning down these houses why are these people so enraged but when you leave people so powerless for so long and they don't have any way to get answers they will find a way to take their power back and we have to ask them why how beautiful to start with books for children and again I can see why this resonated with you Kim (laughs) is wearing a bright yellow (laughs) t-shirt that says property of Little Shop, which I gather is uh, it, the Little Shop of Stories yes. in Decatur and not the Little Shop of Horrors. No, no, no. No Seymour. No, no. <laughs> no Seymour. No oh, there's one more eerie um, incident in the book. Um, a big silver gray SUV driven by a white man swerves into a crowd running over a woman bystander. And the Charlottesville protest, the killing of Heather Heyer, came to mind. Was that the reference? We actually wrote this before that happened. Yes. So we wrote that and then that incident happened and we called each other immediately and we were both just like, are you are you watching the news? Yes. Are you watching the news? And so we we debated whether or not we would take it out. Um, but we thought it would be better to honor her with the truth yes. of these moments. Those that moment is is real, unfortunately, as we learned by watching the news possibly months later mm-hmm. um, and shying away from the painful reality of the tension doesn't do anybody any good. So in addition to the alternating narratives, um, what's the takeaway about the girls' relationship with each other? What happens? 
We love that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think hopefully over the course of the novel, the girls learn some important things about each other that they have in common um, and, and learn to see the world a little bit from one another's eyes. Whether they end up friends or whether they even survive the night, I'm going to leave to readers to decide. Yeah. And one of the things that we always point out is that it's very important to understand the significance of it being two girls taking this journey. Had either one of these girls been male or male presenting, the story is a different story. Um, And that's the thing that unifies them is that they're both girls. And that in this moment being girls, the threat to them is a lot different than if two boys took this journey or if a boy and a girl took this journey. Um, So we hope that people you know, take away from this that like finding the commonality sometimes um, is, is just it just helps you to get through life easier to find the commonality with people. Yeah, it's about survival. Yeah. Kimberly Jones and Gilly Siegel co-wrote the young adult novel I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. You've been listening to City Lights our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., Carrie Burns will tell us how virtual tours of Georgia's film industry sites are thriving even without TV and film production in progress. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. And do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate.
and thanks.